Hey, so um, we are inviting you to make a difference. Uh, there are thousands of Lukes and Larrys in the city of Detroit uh, that just need a helping hand, need someone to sit across the table from them, tell them they got what it takes. The program is just so well put together that anyone can do it. We have mentors from 12 all the way up, so it's really not about you being a teacher or being something uh, of, a, of an educator, it's about you being faithful and available. So we are actually asking everyone at Grace to give an hour a week next year uh, to teach a kid to read. And you can do that here at Grace, but you can do that downtown. There are sites really all over the city uh, where this is gonna be offered. But if we're gonna reach a thousand plus kids, it's gonna take all hands on deck. And uh, we have churches all over Metro Detroit who are joining in in this effort. It's an unprecedented kind of movement of God and we're gonna see the spirit of God unleashed through this. And so uh, today when you leave, if you go up to the uh, kiosk where Matt is sitting and you'll see the SOAR logo there, uh, just fill out a card. We'll give you all the information you need. But again, we are asking, encouraging, uh, cajoling, whatever, uh, all of you to give an hour a week next school year to teach a kid to read. So join me in that. Amen. Thank you. Hey, uh, this week uh, I am teaching a, a sermon called Is Unity Necessary? And here's what's fascinating. Uh, a few months ago, there's a group of churches, all the churches that are coming together to do the tutoring program. Uh, we're doing some other things as well. Uh, we call it the Detroit 67 Initiative, 50 years after the riots. The churches are coming together to say, maybe we can make a difference. We're doing this education thing. Uh, but we're also all teaching a series uh, that starts today. So it's a series within a series for us with Nehemiah. Um, but they asked me to write this sermon. So what's fascinating to me is the sermon that you're about to hear is being taught all over the city of Detroit today. Uh, and I just think it's a powerful picture of, of the church coming together to make a difference. So the, again, the, the question we're asking this morning is, is unity necessary? Is unity necessary? And if unity is necessary, why? Should unity in the church be different than unity out there? Should people look at the church and see something different about the church? I guess I would also ask the question is, is do they? And, and I'm not sure that they always do, but, but the question is why is unity important? What does God desire to do through unity? So grab your Bibles. I know we're in Nehemiah, but there's a lot of overlap to where God is taking us today and what we see in the book of Nehemiah, and you'll hear that as I teach through it, but we're actually gonna look at Ephesians chapter two. A little bit of a curve today, Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna start reading in verse 12. What I want you to know is that in the book of Ephesians, Paul really, for the first three chapters, but all the way up to this chapter two, verse 12, Paul has begun to, to tell us all that we have and all that we are because of what Christ accomplished in the, on the cross. If you go back and read Ephesians, especially those first three chapters, it's just this beautiful picture of everything that Paul can think of that was accomplished on the cross. It's the blessings we have as followers of Christ. But then we get to this, this later chapter, we get to verse 12, Paul kind of makes a little bit of shift and moves from more individual blessing and starts to talk about corporate blessing. What does it mean for the church? What does it mean for us collectively? And that's where we are at this point in verse 12. So again, it's chapter two, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, remember that you were at the, that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Christ Jesus, who you once were, 
excuse me, sorry about that, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in our body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jump down to chapter three and look. start at verse eight. Verse eight, it says, to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what has been plain, the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, get that, through the church, let me say it one more time, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that God has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm just uh, very aware of that last two sentences, that you have purposed something for us as a church that you have called us to something that you desire to use us, even though you don't have to, you could do things any way you want to, but you have chosen to use us, a body of, of believers to, to bring about this, this understanding, to make the manifold wisdom of God known. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So the fundamental problem, I think, with the, the, the premise of this talk, is unity necessary, is I'm not sure that's the right question. I think the better question for us to ask is, are we or are we not united? So this morning, I'm using this Ephesians passage, and I'm just going to give you four unity truths, four unity truths. And the first unity truth that I want you to know, I want you to write it down if you're taking notes, is we are united. Now, we may not live as though we're united. We may not act as though we're united. But if the passage that I just read to you is true, and we believe that scripture is true, it is telling us you are united. Here's the way I would explain that to you. So we saw the, the three kids that are going to Africa, the Stricker kids. Those were triplets, by the way. I don't know if that came through in the, in the video. Um, but look, I could say to them, look, you're not brother and sister, but they are brother and sister, right? They they are brother and sister. The question is, do they live like it, right? So, so there is a fundamental positioning that we have. The question is, are we living into the unity that we have? Look at verse 14. Paul writes, for he, being Jesus himself, is our peace. Through Jesus, we have peace with God. And because we have 
peace with God, that allows us to have peace with one another. We're reconciled to God, which allows us and actually empowers us through his spirit to be reconciled to one another. Again, verse 14, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Peace is a central theme in Paul's writings and especially in in this section of of Ephesians. And it's so important for us to get this because the truth of the matter is you cannot be at peace and be at war. They are juxtaposed to one another. In other words, you either have a heart of peace or you have a heart of war. There is no in-between. And what the scripture is telling us is that, that Jesus has made it possible that you always have a heart of peace. Verse 14 says he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now that just becomes metaphoric for you and I. We read that and we think, oh, I, I get what that means. I have hostility, so I've created the wall between me and Roia, and Jesus is there to break down that wall, and that is a correct interpretation. But if you were a first century reader, you would know that he was talking about an actual physical wall. So when you came into the, the temple area, and there was a, on the temple mount, there was this temple, right? And there was an area that was open to anybody who wanted to come. Anybody could come, Gentile and Jew, and they could be in what was called the the court of the Gentiles. But there was literally a wall that was built, and you couldn't go beyond that wall unless you were a Jew. That was the, 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 the court of the Israelites. And actually, there was a big sign that hung on the wall that said, if you are a Gentile and you go beyond this wall, we're gonna kill you. Very inviting, right? Whatever the opposite of a seeker-friendly church is, they had it going on there, right? If you go past this door, we're going to kill you. That was the wall of hostility. Look, you are welcome to come. You're welcome to listen to what's going on, but you don't come past this door. And what Paul was saying is Jesus came, he broke down the wall of hostility, and now there is no Jew or Gentile. We are made one. So he's using this as an analogy, but again, it fits to your very life. It fits to your own application. But Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility between us. So not only did Jesus symbolically tear down the dividing wall, but look at verse 15 and 16. It says that he did this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. You could say one new humanity or one new uh, uh, human race there. It's not about a gender man when he says that. That he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus' purpose was to bring peace, to tear down the wall and create in himself one new man. One new man. This this work is accomplished. What I want you to see if you go back and you read the Ephesians passage is everything that's written is written in perfect present tense. This happened, so it is available to us right now. It's not saying it could happen. It's saying it, not saying it might happen. It's not saying if you do all these things, then it will happen. What it's saying is you are made a new race. You are current, present, perfect tense, right? So it says that, that he has created in himself one new man. Christ has created a new humanity. Said differently, he has created a new race, Think about that for a minute. He has created a new race. And so we see that described in in Galatians 3. And I don't want you to turn there just for the sake of time, but it's gonna come up on the screen. Galatians 3, 27 and 29 says, for as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. These words, 
put on Christ. If some of you have an NIV translation, it actually says that you are clothed in Christ. And that's probably a little closer to the original writing. And I like the clothed imagery because it helps to bring understanding to, to what he's saying. So look at verse 20 says, he says, so we're, we're clothed in Christ. Therefore, we're neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Here's why this passage is confusing. Because reality tells us that when we say yes to Jesus, we don't stop being male. I don't stop being white. If you say yes to Jesus, you don't stop being black. If you're Asian, you don't stop being Asian. What we know to be true is we don't stop being those things. So it can't be saying yes to Jesus means we don't have any gender. So he must be saying something else. And this is what the passage is saying. And it's all hinges on those words to be clothed in or to put on Christ. And the picture is that it is what covers us. It is the outer garment. So if you have an outer garment, it hides your undergarments. We're very glad that all of you wore outer garments to hide your undergarments, right? But whatever's on the outside is is what you can see. A different way of saying it is, is what's on top. What's the priority? What's on the outside of your identity? And everything else is is what we call an identity marker. Right? So we have an identity marker in Christ, but is that your primary identity marker? Make sense? So, so this idea is that we are, are covered in identity, right? So if we want to live into the oneness, the unity that Christ has accomplished on the cross, then we have to hold on to our new identity, our identity in Christ, above any other identity that might come along. That means it's above being rich or poor or black or white or young or old and, need I say, Democrat or Republican, right? And this is, this is where we get in trouble. So, so just think about it. If, if I am unwilling to move towards you because you are democratic or because you're Republican, if you're unwilling to move towards somebody because of their political leaning, then you have taken the identity marker of politics and held it above your identity in Jesus. If you are not moving towards people... If you're not moving towards people because they're female, if you're not moving towards people because they're of a different race, if you're not moving towards people because they have an identity different than you, then you have clothed yourself, your outside identity, your covering identity is something other than Christ. And we have to have our identity prioritized and we have to be very intentional about it. And that brings me to the second unity truth. First, we are united. It has been accomplished. It is done. Christ did it on the cross. And the second is we sabotage unity when we hold any identity marker above Christ. I was thinking about this this morning and and I was just thinking about all the ways that I've screwed this up in my life, how often I can get the wrong identity to the forefront. And one of the things that God brought to mind is athletics, right? And that could even be just coaching my kids or it could be playing athletics. It could be like my experience with the church softball teams, it, was, it's, it gets ugly sometimes. Well, the minute it gets ugly, it's because we've, we've taken our identity as softball players as great athletes, as competitors, as winners, and we've placed it, that's the only possible explanation for why a bunch of Christian dudes playing softball on a church softball league could be so cruel and unusual to one another is we get our identity totally messed up, but we do it all the time. 
It's very easy for us to elevate an identity marker of, of, of something, even being wealthy. You can, you, can just, you can keep thinking about it. If you just go to the Lord and say, God, show me those identity markers that I hold in the wrong place that sabotage the unity that you want in the church. If we're honest, we discover that we're all guilty of this on some level. But the good news is God's grace is sufficient for us. The good news is Jesus came and destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, that we we have what it takes to put those things aside and to have peace and to have unity with one another. One of the things I want you to see as I talk about the identity markers is that it's God's design that we are diverse. It's God's design that we are ethnically diverse. It's God's design that we are different genders. It's part of the creation story. It's God's design. So when when we see the Galatians passage, it's not about not being those things. It's about bringing all those things together to make this beautiful work of art that can just be so expressive. So I was thinking about this, and I had this picture of a a painter with all of his color paints and and taking those paints. It's not till they blend those paints and bring the paints together on the the canvas that we begin to see the work of art. This isn't about not being black or not being white or not being male or female or, or not being whatever your identity marker is. God gives us many of those identity markers and he wants to bring them together in unity. And that's why the mosaic at grace is so exciting because it's a picture of what God wants to do, of, of what God has for us in unity. If you think about Jesus' ministry, it was marked by breaking all of the social norms. He talked to people he wasn't supposed to talk to. He touched people that society said he wasn't supposed to touch. He gathered people around him that society said he shouldn't gather around him. What was he doing? He was breaking down the identity markers, the social status, and he was saying, no, you wanna bring people together. And then he challenged us, now go, go and do the same thing. Go and be that type of a person. Don't hold your identity marker in me. One of the things I loved as I was doing this is it just kind of struck me. So we have these two individuals in Jesus' camp, if you will, of the disciples. So you have Simon, who was called a zealot. And if you're a zealot in that day, it meant that you were kind of an extremist, right? we, we We would equate it to modern day extremists, but the zealots were saying, look, Rome is the evil empire and they are occupying Israel and we're gonna do anything it takes to get them out of here. So there was violence with the zealots. There was, they would do whatever it takes. Simon the zealot, and then you have Matthew the tax collector and Matthew's employed by Rome. Right, and so I just had this picture of like, what do you think it was like for these two guys to be in the inner circle? Do you think they might have had some heated conversations? Do you think their political views might have been different? Do you think they had to work through some differences? Absolutely, but here's what they had to learn. Our identity is disciple of Jesus before zealot or tax collector. It's a beautiful picture of, of even Jesus saying, look, I'm gonna bring people together who have different ideologies and we're gonna come together and we're gonna be one because something profound happens when we are one. So let's keep looking at Ephesians um, at verse 19. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the spirit. That's what I want you to see, into the dwelling place for God by the spirit. Verse 19 starts with the words, you are. 
not you can be, not you should be. If you do these things, you will be. It says you are. It is a definitive, perfect, present tense statement. You are no longer strangers. You are fellow citizens. You are members of God's household, all built together with Jesus as the foundation. Look at verse 22. Again, it says, so that you can be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's the third unity truth. The Spirit of God moves through our unity. The Spirit of God is unleashed through our unity. Now, this was a hard one for me. I I often process my sermons with Meg, and I was trying to explain this point to her, and she kept kind of, when she kind of looks at me with her head tilted, that's when I know she has no idea what I'm trying to explain. And what I was saying is, look, the, the deal is when we come together in unity, it's a function of multiplication, not addition. And she said, I have no idea what that means. So I've thought about all kinds of ways to make this point. But that's what I want you to first hear, is that when we come together in unity, it's a function Even though you don't know what I'm talking about, stay with me, you will before I'm done. It's a function of multiplication, not addition. So Deuteronomy says one can chase a thousand, but two can chase 10,000. Addition would be one can chase a thousand, two can chase 2,000, three can chase 3,000. But there's a multiplication effect. So I want to kind of make this stick in your mind because I think it's it's an important thing for us to understand. So I need two volunteers. Roya, you always get to volunteer because you're in the front row. And I'm just going to have Gerald come because he's closest and it's all about time. So let's welcome Roy and Gerald to the stage. I'd like you guys to stand right here. How are you? Nice to see you. You'll, some, one day you're going to stop sitting in the front row because Doug always picks up. You guys can stand close together. After all, we are one, right? United in Christ, right? Okay, so if we could kill the lights. I'm still here. I'm going to kill this light too. So what I have in my hand are flashlights. And think about Jesus' words. What did he say to us? He says, you are the light of the world, right? City on a hill cannot be hidden. So uh, these flashlights, uh, flashlights, all lights are measured in something called candle power or luminance. I probably pronounced that wrong, but candle power. Uh, These are over a thousand candle power flashlights. You can shine them on people if you like. Shine them around. They're pretty bright for a flashlight, wouldn't you say, right? Here's the deal. So Everyone in the room can see the lights, right? It's pretty hard to miss. How many of you could read a book right now if they shine the light in your section? Not very many, right? There's still a lot of darkness in the room, right? So we can can be the light. People can see the light as as we work together, and it's a beautiful thing. And that's what Jesus was saying is, look, do the good deeds that I've called you to do, and and people will see your good deeds and honor your Father in heaven. But what, what I want you to hear is what the Scripture is telling us is that when when this thousand uh, candle power flashlight and this thousand candle power flashlight come together, we don't have 2,000. We get a really big flashlight that's a million candle power. Ah! Right? It's a function of multiplication, not addition. And if two can, can, can become a million, imagine, I'm sorry, some people are like, ah, I can't see! Pretty bright, huh? Very cool. I actually just wanted to buy this flashlight, so I made up this illustration so I could buy this flashlight. (laughs) All right. But think about it. When we come together as a church, all of us one, and the lights come on, 
Now there's no darkness in the room. Every one of you could read what you need to read. There's darkness is dispelled. There are uh, 99 cans up here that are creating enough light that even if we turned off the spotlights, that's on me, you guys would all be able to see. That's the power of, of multiplication. That's the power of unity when we come together in Christ. It's not about addition. It's about multiplication. It's a beautiful picture. I'm trying, but my iPad won't come on. All right. One of the reasons I get so excited about this tutoring program, well, one thing I've given a, the last 18 years of my life to this whole sword thing and, and Eagle Sports, so I'm, I believe in it. Um, but as a pastor, as a leader of the church, um, I know we can change the education system in Detroit. I know that God has given us the answer. And so I'm excited about that. I am truly excited about that. But what really gets me up in the morning is I believe that when the church, not just Grace Community Church, but this church and, and Oak Point and Kensington and, and Evangel Ministries and Second Ebenezer, these are all these churches, over 100 churches come together and we do this, that people are going to see Jesus and come to faith. It really will be an act sort of moment for the church. I believe people will come to Christ by the thousands. And that's what I want. I want to teach the kids to read, but I want revival. I want revival in our community, not just in Detroit. Look, I'm telling you, Gross Point needs revival as much as Detroit needs revival and, and Troy needs revival as much as Royal Oak needs revival. And this is an opportunity for us to come together because the spirit moves through unity. We see it throughout the scripture when the people came together to build the tabernacle in, in Exodus. When the tabernacle was built and there was unity of the people, the spirit of God descended and his presence was in the that place. When we study Nehemiah, we're seeing the people come together in unity. They build a wall. Who cares about a wall? It's not about a wall. What it's about is the fact that when the people finally came together, the Spirit of God moved and revival happens among the people. Think about the early Acts church where they were of one mind, of one accord. They came together in unity and the Spirit of God was unleashed and 5,000 people were coming to know Christ in a day. That's what happens when we come together in unity with a single mind, with a single purpose. The Spirit of God moves through our unity. And this is our, brings me to the fourth of the unity truth. Our unity makes God known. Chapter three, verse 10 so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Can I just say it one more time? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authority. This is beyond even Detroit. This is what's gonna make it known. This was according to the eternal purposes, purposes realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's intent was that the unified church would make Christ known. God's intent that we would come together as a mosaic, bringing all of our diversities, all of our secondary identity markers together, that we would bring them all together, and in that unity, the world would see there's something different about those Christians, there's something different about that church, God is doing something, something supernatural is happening there, because those kind of people don't hang out with those kind of people, and we're together, and, and it's God's way of, of showing the world his wisdom of bringing us together. So why is unity necessary? Because unity shows off God's power. And can I just tell you, disunity is a scar to our witness, right? Everything I've said, I've said in the positive, but you don't have to go very far to realize that if we turn on each other, that we are bringing a, a 
damage to Christ's reputation. He entrusts his reputation to us. That's a powerful calling. I don't know why God chose to do it this way, but he did. And so unity is what God is gonna use to make the world know. So Jesus, right, he's in the garden just before he goes to the cross. And he's praying. They call it the priestly prayer. And he's praying to his father and he's praying for his disciples and he's praying for us. And he prays these words in John 17, 21. He says, Father, I pray that they may be one just as you just as, as you, Father, are in me and I and you, they also would be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world will believe that you sent me. Our witness is our unity. Through the cross, we're one. The wall of hostility is destroyed. We have peace with God, which means we can have peace with one another. When we live into what Jesus did for us, when we live into our unity, the outside world is going to ask, what is going on with those people? It will make God known. The question we started with is, why is unity necessary? Because it's God's design. Because it's God's order. It's how God is going to make the mysteries of God known to the people. The fact of the matter, the story of the gospel is that Jesus being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he was willing to leave the comforts of his place. He was willing to be inconvenienced. He was willing to lay down things that were rightfully his. This is mine, I have a right to this. But Jesus said, no, it's not about what is rightfully mine. It says that he made himself nothing, becoming a human. But the scripture says he didn't just become a human, could have come as a king, he could have been born in the palace, he could have lived a life of luxury, after all he's God, he could have done whatever he wanted to, but he came as a servant, not just a servant, but a servant that was willing to go to the cross. He didn't just lay down all of those other things, he laid down his whole life so that we could be one. The unity that we've talked about today came at a pretty high price, it came at the price of Jesus. And we need to live into the unity that he's purchased for us. Now here's what I know to be true. There are people in this room that are thinking about all kinds of places where they don't have unity. Some of you are just thinking about your house. Some of you are thinking about your marriage. Some of you are thinking about your kids. Some of you are thinking about your neighbors. Some of you are thinking about your workplace. Some of you are thinking about the community. All of those are worth thinking about. All of those are worth praying about. All of those are worth surrendering to Christ and realizing he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. If you were here for the first service, one of the testimonies uh, that the young lady talked about is my marriage was a wreck and not until I said yes to Jesus, I give up, then my marriage started to turn. They renewed their vows last year. Their, their life was a wreck, but when they said yes to Jesus, unity came in their marriage. That's what he's promising. When we let go of what is rightfully ours and we just let go, he said, that's not really what's important. What's important is unity. Unity will come. We have a prayer team uh, that can be down here after the service. They will be down here. And I just encourage you, whatever that thing is that you already know what it is, bring it down. Let us just listen with you. Let us just pray for you. Let us pray for unity. Let us be one, just as the Father and the Son are one, so that people will know who Jesus is. Lord, I just pray for us as a church. I pray that we would live this out. I pray desperately 
that we would be one, that the world would look at us and say, how is that even possible? I pray that as we come together as a church and teach these kids to read, that you would, you would change the education system, but I pray that you would change Metro Detroit, that people would come to know you by the thousands, that there would be revival in, in, in these churches and in this place, that people would just be turning to you because they would see the unity of the church coming together to make a difference. Lord, I thank you for the power of this passage in Ephesians. I thank you that these are all perfect present tense, that all we have to do is to live into the very thing you've already given us. But I know what I'm talking about isn't easy and I pray for the people who are struggling. May we all be willing to let go of what we need to let go of so that there can be peace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're a good, good father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I just want to encourage you to come down if you need prayer. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. I see my brother. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my